Just by the way, there are no holy cows. I don't know where that came from. Okay, uh, this is uh, Psalm 131 is what we're going to do. We're in prayer, trying to learn about prayer through the Psalms. Just remembering that sometimes and many times you look at the psalmist and you're wondering, I have no idea what he's even talking about. I, I have no sense of experiencing what's happening in the Psalms. And you're going to find that. And here's how you should look at that. The psalmist is taking you places you've never been before. So go with him. Let him teach you about these new places. These new places with God that you've never been before. Maybe you've come to the end, ending point of your level of knowing God. Well, the psalmist is now going to take you further. So don't freak out when we look at psalms that you're just like, ah, how do, that's not even part of my experience. Let him take you there. Let the word of God actually help it become a part of your experience. So that's just my intro. Let's just get going here. So we're going to talk about someone who's been overlooked. He's overlooked. Invisible is a good word. Uh, he's the youngest and the smallest of eight brothers. So he's the most unnoticed of eight brothers. Uh, he's the most unaccomplished of eight brothers. He's the most unsuccessful of eight brothers. He's the most unimpressive of eight brothers. He's the most unable of eight brothers. He's the most untalented and ungifted of eight brothers. He's the least liked of eight brothers. He is overlooked. So much so that when a VIP visits its home with the intention of wanting to meet the sons of this family, everyone's there except him. And the VIP asks the dad and says, is this all the boys you have? And it's almost like the dad finally realizes, oh, I have one more. <laughs> but he's out taking care of the sheep. He's overlooked. He's overlooked. Invisible is a good word. So weeks later, the dad is thinking and praying about and concerned and deeply worried about his three oldest sons because they're at war. There's a nation that invaded, kind of like Russia invaded Ukraine. The three oldest boys went to war, and, and the dad is concerned about them, thinking about them, praying about them. So what does he do? Is He has four other older boys, but he sends the youngest, the youngest, into the front lines to give up a report about how things are going and to bring supplies to his brothers. And this is when it happened. This is when everything changed. And David ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, Behold, remember in the Hebrew, when behold is said in the Hebrew, it's like, pay attention. Behold, pay attention, the champion, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name. Now, time out. Who is this Goliath? Legend has it that Goliath is a giant. Well, we know he's a giant, but he's a giant from a descendant of a people called the Nephilim. Now in Jewish history, in Jewish theology, in the early church, 
The Nephilim were the offspring of fallen angels and human women just before the flood. And if you think we're crazy, go look at Genesis 6, 1 through 5, and you try to tell me what that's all about. Now, just so you know, just kind of whet your appetite in the fall. You know, we've been doing theology after darks, right? We're going to do one on angels and demons, and we will address this. I will be doing the demon part. Colin will be doing the angel part. It's fitting for both of us. (laughs) I don't know where I'm going today. All right, this giant is nine feet, nine inches tall, and the text tells us this giant is built proportionally. So I do not want you to think of an offensive lineman. I want you to think of the rock, Dwayne Johnson. Nine feet, nine inches tall, a monster of a man. Uh, His spear weighs 20 pounds, and it's called a weaver's beam. That means it was rifled so that it would spin like a bullet. So he would hurl a 20-pound spearhead like a bullet, and wherever it hit a human body, it would take those body parts with it as it went through it. 20 pounds. Just picture a 20-pound plate. He wore uh, body armor uh, consisting of 126 pounds of body armor. But to him, it's like dry-fit Under Armour. We're talking about a walking tank. The youngest. The most overlooked. The most unaccomplished. The most unsuccessful. And David ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers, and he talked to them. And behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came up from out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And David heard him. Now, those of you that are familiar with the story, you're thinking, of course he heard him. Everybody heard him. He did this for 40 days. He did this two times a day for 40 days. And so, in the first words that were heard in the morning were the giant's words. The last words you heard before you went to bed, the giant's words. For 80 times, the giant would come forth and he'd say, who will fight me? And he would look at the armies of Israel and he would say, are you pretenders? Are you pretend warriors? You're nothing but a bunch of, and then you can fill in a bunch of Philistine cuss words. I defy you. And I defy your God. Everyone heard the giant. Everyone. So, of course, David heard the giant, right? But David didn't freak out, the only one that didn't. But David said, I will fight him. Nobody else did. And David breaks the giant. And quite easily, I might say, There's only one soft part in this whole giant. It's covered by a bronze helmet, but David hits it with a hard rock. So yes, David heard the giant, right? Of course he did. But he heard the giant differently than everybody else. 
Today's psalm is a prayer of David, that David, sometime after Goliath, sometime after being overlooked, sometime after logging years of experience and tons of experience as a warrior, as a king, as a spiritual leader, sometime after logging years of hardship and happiness, of flaws and failure, of sin and suffering, of loving others and hurting others, of leading others and wrecking others, sometime after years of experience and tons of experience of walking with God, being used by God, and having to learn to live with himself. Sometime after all of that, he prays this prayer. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. How? Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for this psalm. And we thank you that you are at work and on the move and that you show up in your word and we ask Jesus that right now you would show up personally, actively in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is this prayer? What is David praying? First, here's what you need to know about this prayer. It's the second shortest prayer in all the Psalter. So the first shortest on the list, it gets the shortest prayer in all the Psalter, Psalm 117. It's only two verses. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. It goes like this. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and his faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's the shortest passage in all the Bible. It's not the shortest verse. Jesus wept is the shortest verse. This is the shortest passage. That's the shortest psalm, the shortest prayer in all the Bible. This is the second. The second thing you need to know, this is the cockiest prayer in the Psalms. I mean, who prays this way? Do you begin your prayers by praying and telling God, the beginning of your prayers, how good you are, how righteous you are, what a good Christian you are, the, the stellarness of your character, the goodness of how you see the world and your ideology, the eyes, that you don't seize control over things. Your personal life, your relational life as a king, as a, as a prophet, as a spiritual leader in the church. I mean, do you begin your prayers by telling God, how great a dad you are, and what a great entrepreneur you are, and how successful you are as a coach or a professor. Do you put forth your accomplishments uh, in your vocation to the Lord? <laughs> oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my being, my character. My eyes, the way I see the world, are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
Let's go to verse 1 if we can. Great. Good job, Malachi. Here we go. Okay, so David is saying three things in verse 1. He's saying three things he's not. Look at the first one. Oh God, I am not inflated. In other words, he's saying, oh God, I'm not lifted up. I'm not inflated. I'm not like a balloon. I'm not proud. I'm not lofty. Literally, he's not thinking too highly of himself. In the literal Hebrew, this word lifted up is used for tall trees that reach towards the heaven. So he's saying, I'm not an inflated person. I'm not an elevated person. I don't think too highly of myself as a person. Now let's look at the second thing he's saying he's not. Keep going back into verse 1. My eyes are not raised too high. You see that? Raised too high means he's not arrogant. He's not superior. So now he's looking out at the world, and he's, not, and he's looking specifically at you. So if he comes across you, this overlooked, unaccomplished person who's now killed a giant and is now a warrior, the greatest warrior that maybe ever lived, the greatest king maybe that ever lived, besides Nebuchadnezzar, maybe. And he looks at you, and he doesn't, he doesn't look down at you. He doesn't feel superior to you. That's what he's saying. I'm not like that. I'm not that mom that posts all the time on social media. I'm not that person on TikTok. Literally, I'm not better than other people, God. That's the second thing he prays. Third thing he prays that he's not, oh, God, I'm, I know I'm not in control of my life. I mean, he's basically saying when he says, I do not occupy myself, see that? that? Literally, that word occupy means preoccupy. It means to be obsessive. It means to be addicted. It means to be stressed out. It means to be anxious. I do not, I am not stressed out with trying to control my life. I'm not preoccupied in my marriage and preoccupied with my kids and preoccupied with myself. I'm not I'm not exhausted from trying to control everything in my life all day. I'm not addicted and driven by things beyond my control. I'm not despairing over things I can't control. I mean, these are three incredible things that they were true of each. If one of them was true about us, we'd be the greatest person, the most peaceful person, the most calm person, the most quiet person. What is this prayer? What is David praying? So there are two brothers called the Trip Brothers. Some of you know them. They wrote two classic books on parenting, one on how to shepherd a child's heart for the younger years and one called the age of opportunity for the older years because once your child reaches a certain age, it's all about opportunities. It's not about you being able to be able to shepherd their hearts the same way when they're little. It's now opportunities to shepherd their heart. Great books. Well, Paul Tripp, uh, currently, after writing all these books, been a pastor himself, he currently does a lot of work with pastors and churches that are in crisis. In other words, he does a lot of work with pastors and churches in their worst moments. Some of them that he's worked with that you might have known have been in the news, like Mars Hill, like Mark Driscoll, like Tullian, Trevigian, and several other major, big churches and evangelicalism across the traditions, across the spectrums, across denominational lines, PCA churches, Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, Episcopal churches, Bible churches, Pentecostal churches, you name it, he's done it all. 
my wife's listening to a podcast called The Glass House, and he's being interviewed in it, and she told me these, this line that he said in it, and I, I cannot stop thinking about it, which might say more about me than it does anything, but still, in it, this is what he said, that she said that I can't stop thinking about. He said, our souls are not meant for fame. Our souls are not meant for fame. What is this prayer? What is David praying? Answer the anti-fame prayer. David isn't being cocky here. He's not one of those people that never doubts his own righteousness. Let's look at verse 1 again. He's not saying right here, he's not saying my heart is great. I've got great character. He's not saying my eyes are great. I look at the world perfectly. He's not saying I don't go after the bad things. I only go after the good things. That's not what he's saying. He's not the kind of person that never doubts his ability to fix things, even his own heart. Look at verse 1 again. All right, let's go to 2. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. He's not saying I calmed my soul. I quieted my soul. He's not saying that. This is the prayer of someone who has actually struggled with himself before God. That's what this prayer is about. This is not a cocky prayer. This is someone after logging years and logging experience, deep experience with himself before God, where he's had to wrestle with a self-doubting heart and a self-elated heart, where he's had to wrestle with feeling inferior before other people and feeling superior to other people, where he's had to wrestle with this deep need to control his life, his relationship with God, his kids, his vocation as a king, as a warrior, as a spiritual leader, as a national leader. He's had to wrestle with the need to control In Psalm 30, 131, we are watching someone who has come to tell God, my soul is not meant for fame. Oh God, I'm done with the need to be famous. That's what we're watching. We are watching a work of God in real time. We are watching a work of God on the spot. We are watching God work through prayer in a man's, in a woman's, in a child's life. Connecting with God, this is so important. Connecting with God through prayer, changes you. When you connect with God through prayer, you're changed. When you pray for others to connect with God, it's powerful and changing in their life. Connecting with God through prayer might be the most unknown cure today for all that ails us. 
It might be the unknown cure for your personal life. It might be the unknown cure for your marriage. It might be the unknown cure for your parenting. It might be the unknown cure for a culture. It might be the unknown cure for leaders. It might be the unknown cure for your propensities, the realities of your heart that are talked about here, for the way you see other people, your view of the world, the way it's talked about here, for this deep, deep need to be in control, no matter what area of life it is. Connecting with God through prayer is an unknown cure today, but not to David. We are watching someone struggle with himself before God, connect with God about himself, and change. So 131, Psalm 131 is the anti-fame prayer. It's, I'm done with being famous. My soul is not meant for fame. That's what the prayer is. So how does this prayer change you, though? It changes him, but how does it change you? But I have, look at verse 2. Let's go to verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. Remember Alice in Wonderland? Do you all remember that story? Which, by the way, if you've read that as an adult, it's a creepy tale. Oh, my word. I mean, how many, I mean, I love generational stuff. Like every generation always thinks this generation's better or holier or parented better or gave their kids better stuff than the other generations. You ever notice that? That happens all the time. So I love it when, you know, one generation was giving their kids Alice in Wonderland, and then now I'm old enough to actually listen to it and look at it, and I'm like, that's creepy. That's absolutely creepy. I'd, I'd rather let him watch Black Hawk Down. And we were soldiers once. Where was I going with Alice? All right, Alice in Wonderland. You remember what was wrong with Alice? She was either too big or too small. Do you remember that? Too big or too small. She was never the right size. And because she was never the right size, she was continually disoriented. David has this problem. You have this problem. You are never the right size. We are never the right size. And Psalm 31 helps make you the right size. A calm soul. What is a calm soul? So a calm soul is literally, according to the Hebrew, a soul that has been leveled to the ground. A calm soul is a soul that's not elevated, it's been leveled to the ground. But it's been leveled to the ground. It didn't go below the ground and become inferior. It was leveled to the ground. The ground is the proper place. David is saying, listen, the natural human soul inflates itself. That's what the natural human soul does, it inflates itself. And the natural human soul needs to be leveled. It needs to be calmed. The anti-fame prayer calms, levels your soul to the ground, makes you the right size. Now look at the second thing, quieted. So quieted, what does that mean? Quieted means a quieted soul is a soul that's been silenced. What's been silenced? 
from all the noise. In other words, what David is saying is that the natural soul is noisy. The natural soul needs to be silenced. What is the natural soul noisy about? Answer itself. It can't stop thinking about itself. It can't stop thinking, what do I think of myself? It can't stop thinking, what does God think of me? It can't stop thinking, what do they think of me? It can't stop thinking, what does success think of me? It can't stop thinking, what does the scale think of me? It can't stop thinking about itself. Be noticed, I gotta be noticed. I've gotta be somebody, I've gotta be important. I've gotta make a difference. I've gotta be an activist. Gotta be famous. The Tower of Babel over here would say, you've gotta make a name for yourself. And some of you are thinking, I'm not that kind of a person. Because you can see them, you know, you got different personality types, the ones that charge and the ones that retreat. But that's the same thing, just a different response to the same thing. One says, I'm so thinking about myself, I know I'm going to fail, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to always hold back. I'm going to always just kind of like try to play by the rules. I'm going to always kind of like not make a mistake. I'm, I'm not going to really go after it. I'm not going to really let myself go. I'm not going to really be myself. I'm not going to really like that thing because you might not like that thing. Same thing as the other person that thinks so highly of themselves that they're going ahead of everybody else. David is saying that the natural human soul needs to be silenced or quieted. The anti-fame prayer quiets your soul. It helps make you the right size. So how does this prayer change you? It helps make you the right size. <laughs> Specifically the size of a weaned child. Do you see it? That's the image here, a weaned child. I mean, that's what's so crazy about the Psalms. You go from image to image to image to image, and you're kind of like, okay, I'm getting lost in all the images. But notice the Bible doesn't care. It gives you one image after another, and it's saying, keep up. What do you mean you're lost in that one? I'm down here. At it. Get after it. Keep up. So it's saying, a weaned child is the right size, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. What is a weaned child? A child that doesn't need its mother's milk. A child doesn't need its mother's milk means it's a child that's got another food source because it doesn't need that source anymore. So the mother's milk in this text is the, is the milk of self. It's the hunger of the self. Being the right size, my soul within me, it's no longer needing and craving and feeding on itself. It's weaned. It has another food source, another source that feeds the soul. And that food source is the only power 
that makes us calm and quiet, that levels our soul to the ground and calms all the noise in our soul. This is why you can say the other food source weans you off yourself. This other food source weans you off yourself. Oh, I'm off myself. This is why you can say my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not too haughty, raised too high. I do not obsess over things too great and too marvelous for me. This is why you can say I've calmed and quieted my soul. Because another food source is the power, is the work, is what's doing it. You're weaned off yourself. That's incredible, isn't it? How many of you would like to stop thinking about yourself? Psalm 131. What is this other food source, though? In this text, this text just flows so nicely. Let's go to it. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The other food source is the Lord. But notice what the text is saying. I mean, this is what we say all the time, but I just want you to see it because this is the Old Testament. That means it's the whole Bible. So don't tell me we need another message because I'm just going to go, well, this says from this time forth, which means right now and forever, but I don't think it stops. You and I need to hope in the Lord today, this morning, this afternoon, in your relational conflict, in the way you're going to parent, in your rest and play, and in your work tomorrow, and then whatever happens in the rest of the week. Hope now, hope then, hope, 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 hope. David is feeding on the only one lifted up. He's feeding on the only one raised too high. He's feeding on the only one who does great and marvelous things. Do you know that work? Let's go to that passage real quick. I think that's two, verse two. No, let's go up to one. Okay, see this right here? Too great, too marvelous. That's used throughout all the Old Testament. And it's only used in relation to things that God does. So what he's saying is that I'm not in control, God is. What he's saying is that the things that are too great and too marvelous specifically have to do with God doing marvelous grace in people's lives, of God doing great grace in communities and nations and relationships. It's these breaking in realities of something from the outside coming in, and that's why it's too marvelous and it's too great because it's not known about that in this world. In other words, if we were to think about grace in this world, we can't think of it. It's not in your dictionary. It's not in your, the synapses in your head. You can't come up with grace. You don't even know what it is because it's not a word that's normal. It's not an ordinary word. It's not a word in our dictionaries and our thesaurus. It's not a word in our personal lives and in our relationships. It is not a word and it's not a reality of this world. It is a word and a reality that comes from the outside in, and it's too great, and it's too marvelous, and that's all you can do with the English language and the Hebrew language. And Peter, 
The angels say they look at this too great and too marvelous grace, and they're in awe of it because they've never seen it before. And so we need to like recover the too great and too marvelous reality of grace. Whenever grace shows up in the world and whenever grace shows up in the Bible, it's always a strange thing. It's completely unnatural. It's bizarre. It's like, where did that come from? It's a UFO. What is this? That's grace. And so if it doesn't bring this astounding, stunning, extraordinary, shock, marvel, too great feeling from us, we don't understand grace. Because whenever grace shows up, it's too great, it's too marvelous, it's breathtaking, it's strange, I don't understand it, it's bizarre, it's radical. Grace is never domesticated. It's never tame. It's extra, ultra, whatever. There's a famous storm that happens in the New Testament where something too great happens. Where something too marvelous happens. So much so that everybody that experiences it says, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But here's what's so astounding. Everyone in that boat knows their Bible when they're saying this. And they know about the two great and two marvelous realities of the Old Testament. They say this because they know their Bible. They know that what calmed and quieted the Red Sea says, who great, who is able to do this? The Lord. It's the Lord. They know their Bibles, and so they know that when the calmed and quieted Jordan answers that question, who is this? It says, it's the Lord. They know their Bibles, and so they know when they read Psalm 131, they know what a calmed and quieted soul answers to what does this too great and too marvelous thing. They know it's the Lord. So what is this other source of food that you need? What do you need? You need the Lord, the one that does these too great and too marvelous things. And when you get the too great and too marvelous things of the Lord, that's your food. And when you start tasting that food and experiencing that food, it weans you off you. Who wants to keep eating from themselves? And a great windstorm arose. Here's the storm. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And everyone said, Who is this? The Old Testament says, It's the Lord. So what does hope in the Lord look like for you? Here's what it looks like for you. It looks like taking your stormy soul, storming with self, taking it to the Lord in prayer, and having Jesus say to you, peace, be still, be calmed by my death for you. Because my death calms your stormy soul. Because my death paid your pride debt 
your haughty, eye-elevated pride. You have the calm of forgiveness. Peace be still. And then he says, my, my, my death ends your pride life. He actually gives you a new life. A life that, and a heart that has no pride in it. Did you know that? I mean, some of us think that the Christian life is about like, you have this, this fallen heart that you know you're really well acquainted with, right? And you think that you're being infused with the Holy Spirit somehow to kind of rehabilitate this thing and fix this thing, and hopefully you see some inklings of life and maybe some unprideness in there. That's not, what, that's not what the Bible says. You will always have in this life that broken, selfish, self-absorbed heart. You just were given a new one. It's not that way. So the Christian is the most stunning creature that ever lived. He's not one nature. She's not one nature anymore. In one body, two. By addition. And so that ends the dominance of the pride life. The lifted up high life superior, better than other life. But you don't do it. You were given it. It's too great. It's too great. Hope in the Lord also looks like this. It looks like taking your noisy soul, the noisy soul of unbelief. What's the noisy soul of unbelief? It's the one that says, oh, Lord, do you not care that I'm perishing? And Jesus speaks to you, peace. Be still. Be calmed by my great care for you. How do you know that he cares for you? Well, if this was Jonah, which he's kind of doing, he'd throw himself overboard and stop the storm, which is what happens at the cross. Right? His great care silences the noise in your soul. He does care for you. And what that means now is that his care for you, his care for you, his love for you is what now? It's your identity. None of these false identities that are going on right now out there, gender, race, whatever, jeepers. You know what that is? That's called identity by works. Paul was here to say, oh, that's just another, another way to justify yourself by works. Justification by faith means that you're given an identity, and it's called Jesus' love for you, his gracious love for you. That's who you are. So you know what that does? That gives you this great calmness that levels your soul to the ground, that gives you and silences the noise. You're now able to say, I'm finally myself. I don't have to be famous. I don't give a rip what you think about me. I'm the freest person in the world. Also, his great care He gives you his righteousness. You know what that means? That ends your need to be famous. His righteousness is your fame. It's all the fame you need. So be calm. You are now the right size. Hope in the Lord makes you the right size. So, Psalm 131 is the anti-fame prayer. I'm done with being famous. My soul wasn't meant for fame. 
I will instead hope in the Lord. Amen.